Okay. That said, um, uh, when, when we take a look at um, trying to put what is about to happen in terms of uh, post-resurrection uh, moment and that the 40-day ministry, I find it interesting that the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ died according to our sin, sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Okay? What scriptures are we talking about here? Old the Old Testament. Our favorite book. We love the Old Testament. We can quote the Old Testament. We, we look forward every four years to spending a whole year studying the Old Testament. It's our thing. Yeah. I have to say, it was my favorite year of teaching seminary. All the old times filled with great stories. Well, just, it, remind, it just put into place in my head who we are we need to keep in mind when we're studying these people in the first century Judaism are they New Testament people or Old Testament people they are Old Testament people they think Old Testament they read Old Testament they breathe Old Testament they swim in that world and, and that's part of the reason why sometimes when we're looking at these things uh, we're trying to understand things going on uh, why the Savior says what he does and why they do what they do. And we're looking at it through the eyes of today. And it's called presentism. We want, we're appalled that there would be slaves because we don't like slaves today. We're appalled the way that they treat women because we try and do better these days. I mean, we're, we are appalled because they're them. <laughs> you know, the, and, and really, uh, in, in reality, what's happening is that we need to be able to look at these events through Old Testament eyes, which is our favorite book. And then we're kind of confused sometimes because it's not our favorite book. And because we don't understand, in fact, the more we look at the Old Testament, we go, that is really a spooky place. And there we think we can't understand about this and that. That just doesn't make any sense. Um, but, le but let me ask you this. Here is the, if we're going to say what is the message of the Old Testament, let me pull back and ask you. If, if someone were going to ask you what is the message of the Book of Mormon, if you're going to put it into a single phrase, what is the message of the Book of Mormon? It is another testament of Christ. Yeah, we put that in the title. But that's not the message. I think that's in there. Think a little higher. Yeah? It's all the same covenant. The old and the new covenant. Ah, now you're getting warmer. Salvation through the Abrahamic? Yes, and Abraham is even a step closer. Okay. Okay? You're walking up to it. It's the same message in the Book of Mormon, and it's the same message of the Old Testament. Yeah? Yes, but even that, there's one message that is more umbrella-like than that. We are a covenant people. The message, uh, if someone wanted to say, what, what is the message of the Book of Mormon and of the Old Testament and of the New Testament? It is simply this. God keeps His promises. 
God keeps his promises. The, the Savior, the covenants, God keeps his promises. Think about how painful betrayal is. If you've ever been really betrayed and hurt by somebody you really cared about, that is betrayal and nothing hurts like betrayal. Now to be able to build trust, who do we have trust in? How do you build trust? You have to have trust in somebody who promises and then fulfills their promises. In order to have faith in this God, we have to know that he keeps his promises. Now, we don't use the word promises in the church. We use the word what? Covenants. God makes covenants. God keeps covenants. That is the message of the Book of Mormon. And the mega view of the Old Testament is God makes covenants. God keeps covenants. We can trust him. We can have faith in this God. That's, that is the mega message. Does that make sense? Now, for the people living in first century Judaism, that's the world they swam in. What promises has God made to us that we believe will be fulfilled? And are they being fulfilled? That's the message. That's what they're expecting. That's what they're waiting on. Okay, so let, let, let me give you an example of that then. In their world... The, the, the Genesis and Exodus, those are all stories that live and are told. That's the water they, that's the water they swim in. Okay? So let's, let's remind ourselves of a couple of things. Okay? Now, before eating of the fruit of knowledge, Adam and Eve's eyes were open to see God, but closed to seeing the understanding of pain. Now, let me take you a sec. Let me back up. Just a reminder. <laughs> when, when Satan is trying to, um, trying to tempt Eve, he makes an interesting statement. He says, oh, I see that your eyes are not yet open. You have forgotten everything. Okay. What were, her, what were her eyes closed to? When he says, your eyes, if I open your eyes, then you're going to see something that you're not seeing. The contrast between joy and pain. He says, you have to know good and evil, right? Okay, and she will later say, you have to know the, the bitter to prize the sweet. She, she will say that, okay? In some respects, that's cause and effect. They're, they're just innocent. They don't understand what brings about other things. They don't, they don't follow the natural progression. Sure, sure. That there's going to be some consequences to this. But, she, but he's saying, your eyes haven't yet been opened. If your eyes were open, you'd remember something. Not something that's going to happen. Your eyes are, your eyes are not yet open. You have forgotten everything. What did Satan want her to remember if her eyes were open. Who he was. Ooh, that's really close. Who he was. Okay. What did he remember that she didn't? The pre-existence. The pre-existence and specifically what? What's burning in his brain? The plan. The plan. He offered to fulfill that, right? 
But, but the, uh, the, the, the shortcut to this, we can spend a whole lesson on this one, but the, the shortcut here is Satan remembered not being, being allowed to be God. Satan wanted to be God. Lucifer wanted to be God. And he was denied that privilege in his mind for whatever reason. He, they wouldn't let me do it. Therefore, I, I create a rebellion. That's what he remembers. He wants Eve to remember this as well. Now, remember, in Hebrew, the word Lucifer and Satan means deceiver. What was Lucifer's lie to Eve? What was the big lie? What was the big deception? Well, you would think that. He didn't, but, but it wasn't about dying because he didn't intend them to die. The, the, there was going to be two courses to this meal. First eat this tree, then eat this tree, and you won't die and you'll live forever in your sins. The lie was not you won't die. There it is. And, 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 the, and the, that you will become as a gods. And so what's the deception? She says that you will become gods. You will become like the gods, knowing good and evil. What's the deception? Right? Okay, here was the deception. Here, here was the deception. They don't want you to become like them. They don't want you to become like them. Therefore, they have closed your eyes so that you can't... They, didn't, they did it to me. Now they're going to do it to you. They didn't want me to be a god. They don't want you to be a god. So he closed your eyes. They have deceived you. You thought while you were walking in the garden that Jesus and Heavenly Father were good people. They're hiding from you the fact that you could become like them. I'm going to give you the fruit so you can become like them. They just didn't want you to do it. That was the deception. He's the deceiver. He tried to accuse God of trying to not let them become like him. Does that make sense? That was the, that was the big deception. Now, if we're, so what happens here is, and ultimately they find out, wait a minute, after we've eaten the fruit, they say, no, I'm going to provide a savior for you so that you can do everything possible to come back into our presence. It wasn't a lie. We want you to be like us. We really do want you to be like us. He lied to you about our intentions. Okay? So, before eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge, their eyes were open to God. They walked with Him. They saw Him. They talked to Him. But their eyes were closed to what? Sin. The bitterness of sin. Right? Okay? Now, after eating, interestingly enough, their eyes were now open to sin, but closed to God. Why would they do that? Let me just say that um, this act of closing their eyes so they couldn't see, if they were going to experience the, more, the pain of mortality, closing their eyes to God was the most merciful act God could have done for them. By far. We have one moment in all of our history where we have a prophet 
who is able to live and be with God and yet experience the pain of mortality both at the same time and be, have his eyes open to both at the same time. Who, who was that? Moses 7. Enoch. Enoch is standing in the presence of God. He can see him. And he sees the pain and suffering of the people at the time of the flood. And what does it say happened to Enoch? And Enoch wept and all eternity shook. That's what would happen if we knew God completely and we experienced the mortality pain at the same time. That would be overwhelming for us. At that moment, Enoch has actually become like God. He is having a God perspective and weeping because God weeps when he sees that. He has this perspective of eternity, but he sees the pain and the hurt that comes with sin. Okay? If we think mortality is too much now. Yes. Exactly. She says, we think mortality is hard now. We look at our pain and suffering and struggles and stuff like that. Now look at it from God's perspective and now it's overwhelming. We as humans, we don't have the capacity to mourn that much. God does. Congratulations, Enoch. Now you have a glimpse of what it means like to be God. And he weeps and all eternity shakes. Is that a lot? Similar to what the Savior would experience. Oh, as the Savior's experience is opening up as Godhood and he he descends below all things, now you get Gethsemane in the cross. Yep, exactly. Very much. The reason why, if you're going to experience mortality, I've got to block off. being with me, and I've got to put a veil over your mind so you don't even remember the pre-existence. I've mentioned before that uh, Truman Madsen used to say, our mortal amnesia is the Lord's anesthesia. (laughs) Our mortal amnesia is the Lord's anesthesia. He loves us so much he doesn't have us remember. It would be too much. Okay? So, here's the fall. Eyes were open to see God, but closed to pain. As soon as they understand pain and bitterness, then it's going to be closed to to God. Okay? So, the fall, and you've got to picture this, the fall results in descending, coming out of the mountain of the Lord's house. Garden of Eden is on a mountain. they, They come down. They descend down off the mountain, down into the lone and dreary world, and they're exiled. They're exiled from being with God. Okay? And now they're filled with sorrows, questions, and confusion. So they're experiencing the bitter that they need to, that mortality is. Okay? Make sense? All right. Yeah? I think they did. Because... I mean, the, the, the temple gives us a hint of that when they are taught a number of things in the garden. Then they leave the garden, they go out into the lone and dreary wilderness, and they have now forgotten everything, and they have to be retaught again by the angel, even though some of that they were taught in the garden. 
Make sure, you're going to have to go sacrifice. Really? We'd forgotten how to sacrifice. Why are we doing that? Well, let me teach you. Even though we think that they knew that. So, yeah, I think they would have, I think as time faded, what the, the most uh, uh, merciful thing the Lord could have done was cause them to slowly begin to forget uh, that. Yeah. Kevin, they were sealed to each other. Sure. In the garden. Would they have had to be retaught that also? Ooh, that's a good question. I don't know. Good question. She says they were sealed. Would they have to be taught the power of sealing and promises and covenants? Yeah, may have. I, maybe Cindy mentioned this to you yesterday, but you, in our lesson yesterday, Relay Society, Trust in the Lord, President Oaks talked. A sister asked a question that I thought was a very good one, and we thought we answered it. She said, if we were taught in the pre-existence, and then we came to this life in the veil, mm -hmm. why is it that when we die and go through the veil, do people have to be retaught in the prison world? Ah. She says, if we were taught things in the pre-existence and then a veil puts over our eyes, then we come into mortality. And then we go, why do we have to be retaught in, in the spirit world? Because the veil has not yet been lifted yet. Okay, then that's, that's what... The, the, veil, the only way that we can continue... That, remember, our mortal experience is on both sides of the veil to the resurrection. And the only way that we can continue to choose the, the sweet over the bitter is that we will have to do that there all the way through and otherwise it would if we automatically remembered our pre-existence experience when we crossed over into the veil we wouldn't be our, our mortality wouldn't we wouldn't continue to grow okay and right right yeah yeah so, so the thing that is restored when you pass from life to death is a clear recollection of this life uh, this life yeah and if you're if you look carefully at the, the scriptural definition and the usage of the term this life, it denotes from birth until the resurrection. That's right. Which includes both mortality and the spirit. Yeah, this this mor this mortality has two two acts to it. <laughs> the mortal side and the spirit side, and they're both part of the same learning process. Okay? You could call it three acts and include the judgment and resurrection. Yeah, you could. And probably should. All right. So, believe it or not, we're still working on the New Testament here. You know, where is he wandering through the woods? Okay. Well, let me show you. So, here's Adam and Eve then. They're learning how to sacrifice. They're waiting for further light and for the one that would redeem them from exile. They're in exile. We were, we were in the garden. We know we were in a great place. We don't remember all of it. And we don't remember, and, and we would like to be with God. Remember that was sort of great, but we don't remember everything about it. But this life is really hard, okay? And we would like to get the one that's going to bring us back into God's presence. We know that much. Okay, now, here's the mega picture. Okay, Israel. Israel itself, the story, the Old Testament, and the story of God's promises to Abraham and to Moses, to Israel. Here's what they knew. Promises, covenants were made to Father Abraham and it promised a land of milk and honey and he would be their God. We are covenant people. The, uh, now, the law of Moses doesn't necessarily save us, but it is it's the thing that covenant people do to remind themselves of this covenant. Now, the national sins had resulted in the Babylonian exile. Because they kept 
all these things. Then the Babylonians come in and the temple is destroyed and they go into exile in Babylon. And we all know this. You know, the, again, the people, the, the children of Israel sitting in Babylon going, man, our fathers really screwed this up. Jeremiah says, the, fa the, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are on edge. <laughs> Was the proverb in Jeremiah, 20, Jeremiah 31. Talks about, our fathers did bad things and we got the results. And we're sitting here outside the gates of Babylon and the temple is destroyed because our fathers did bad things. Israel sinned and we're in exile. We have been kicked out of the Garden of Eden because of the sins of our fathers. Does that sound familiar? Okay. That's why I say that you've you got to see this kind of in context. Now, even during the time of Jesus... They believed that they were still in exile. Even though they had come back, Herod had built the temple, they were still there. They were still in Babylonian exile. They hadn't returned to the Garden of Eden. Why? The Shekinah had not returned. There wasn't the glory, the cloud that was sitting over the tabernacle and the Temple of Solomon. It had never come to the Temple of Zerubbabel and it had never come to the Temple of Herod. They were still waiting for the return of glory of God. We're still in exile. We're not back yet in the Garden of Eden where we want to be. Pagans still ruled over them. We're still under the iron rule of the Romans. And they're waiting for deliverance. They're waiting for the one that's going to deliver them like Moses showed up when they were in Egypt and brought them to the land. We're waiting for the new Moses to come and bring us out of exile, get rid of the pagans, drown them in the sea, and now we're going to be. Now we will have returned. Why? Because here, now if this ha if this ha hasn't happened yet, God made promises to us. What does this say if these promises are not yet being fulfilled? Are we really his people? He said we were. Tell me that as Latter-day Saints we don't do this. I have, I have kept the commandments. I have paid my tithing. How come we are now in financial trouble? I, I held family home evening. How come I'm losing my kids? God made promises. How come he's not keeping his promise? Now, if that's the case, there's only two reasons God doesn't keep his promise. Number one, God isn't who he says he is. What's the other reason? He's not ready. We it could be ready. We messed, up. we messed up. There's something wrong with us. We're not as righteous as we need to be if we'll be more perfect. Then, the, then God will keep his promises. The other one is maybe God doesn't keep his promises the way that we thought he did. So we're going to doubt God. There's only two options there. And as Latter-day Saints, we can, well, no, I, I, I know with every fiber of my being that God is, okay, so it must be me. <laughs> okay? And he's supposed to deliver me when I want him to deliver me on my timetable and in my way. And he'd better hurry. 
Okay? All right. So that is the natural... That, now, for an Old Testament people living at the time of Jesus, this is their world. Are we in exile or not? Does God keep his promises or not? If you're an Essene, one of the zealots living out by the Dead Sea, you go, oh no, the, there's a reason none of that's returned. You guys are screwed up. The temple is false. It's bad. We're going to create our own temple stuff out here at Qumran because that is way messed up. And the Pharisees are out there going, no, it's the Sadducees that are messing things up. That's why it hasn't returned. And the Sadducees are going, no, we think it's kind of all right. The Romans are, the Romans are kind of cool. We think that it may not be, it's a little different than maybe we were thinking, but hey, we love Caesar. He's letting us be us and we get big houses and, and all kinds of stuff. Very cool. They, they, literally, they are the kings on the hill. Okay? So, depending on who you're talking to, there are different, different degrees of how bad the exile is. Sadducees aren't in any hurry. The zealots are the ones that like... Went, do you know that when the Romans were attacking Jerusalem, the zealots poured it and burned the food stuff? We're trying to provoke these guys because then God will come and rescue the people. Then the deliverer will show up. Okay, that's, that's the mindset. All right, so with all of that, so all that in your head, yeah? Just wondering, how much of that is spilled over today in Jewish culture? Do there still all these divisions? Or are they oh, yeah, yeah. The, the, if you walk into a, he said, as a difference is in Judaism, if you walk into a Reformed Judaism and you have a, a, a woman cantor uh, singing, that, that's much different from the, from the Orthodox guys that, that I sat next to, right next to the wall in Jerusalem, underneath, uh, underneath the pavilion there. And they're studying, and they're in there, and there's no women in this place at all. This is where, this is the most Orthodox of Orthodox in there, right? Two different worlds, and what they're looking for is completely different, Okay. Most of rabbinic Judaism goes, no, I don't think we really need a Messiah at this point because we have Torah. If we have Torah and synagogue, we're in a pretty good place. Because the temple is gone, that was an artifact of then, this is now. The Orthodox guys are like, bring back the temple right now. We're waiting for this. And clean out all of these reformed people. Make it right. Okay, so there's the world. So then we get this moment, okay? Finally, back to, back to New Testament stuff. But I want you to see it through this eyes. So now we're on the road. Luke 24. Uh, now, I love the, I love the uh, Middle Ages art where, where Jesus is kind of dressed like... Uh, I don't even know what to say that is. And, and apparently the disciples are running around in leather and... Pillowcases, or something. I don't know what that is. Party. Yeah, it's kind of a toga party. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, that, that was a pretty great representation. Okay, now, Luke 24. And it says, and two of the disciples, now we know one is Cleopas. That, that ups the chances by quite a bit that Cleopas's wife is named Mary, and she was at. The, the cross. 
So it's a pretty good chance, and you start right here, and this is really critical, Cleopas for sure, and then probably Mary, his wife, they've, they've, for three days they've been there, and then on the morning of the resurrection, they're going to go home. They're going to go home to Emmaus. Okay? So, yeah? Would that be why the other disciples' name is not in the New Testament? <laughs> <laughs> Could be. Because that, I know, you're thinking, good for you. Okay, so Cleopas, I'm, I'm going to assume for what we're doing that this is Cleopas and Mary. And it'll become apparent here in a sec. Cleopas and Mary, of them that went on that day to a village named Emmaus, that's about 60 stadia, it's about 7 miles. Okay, from Jerusalem, so about as far away as Bethlehem. And they discussed with, with one another all these things that had taken place. Now, here's where it starts. Picture what, what's happening here. You have a man and a woman that are disciples, and they're going to go from Jerusalem. They're going to come down the hill to Emmaus. Okay? So, that, that it would be Mary. If you, go, if you look at uh, Mary at the cross, and it says these Marys were here, one will say, and I think it's in Luke, says, and this was uh, Mary, the wife of Cleopas. Oh. Luke puts it together for you. So it makes sense that if, if Cleopas is going home and he's got somebody with him, we know his wife was in town, why would he leave her in Jerusalem? I think it's Luke 24, if somebody wants to look that up. But it's, it's Jesus at the cross and it'll say, Mary, wife of Cleopas. Okay? So now... Because this changes the way we look at this. If this is a husband and wife, that are, that it's a man and a woman. This is Adam and Eve walking out of Eden, coming down the hill, and away we go. Okay? So here is the reenactment of Eden, turned upside down. So they descend. And it came to pass that while they were discussing and reasoning together... What happened? I don't know. This could be. I, I trust the women. I don't trust the women. I don't know. What, you know. what do we do here? Okay. Jesus himself approached and began to walk with them. But, but what's important here? That would have jumped, leaped out to an Old Testament believing readers of John. <coughs> Their eyes were kept from beholding him. Their eyes were blind. They were, they, when they left Eden, their eyes were blinded. They couldn't see. God was in their midst and they couldn't see him. Their eyes were held back. Okay? They were looking at that outfit. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they were. It's like, you seem like a nice guy, but what are you wearing? <laughs> okay. Yeah, so, but, but there, there is kind of your little hint that says something important here is being enacted, that, that God would walk in their midst and they wouldn't be able to see that he was there. And, what, and look at what happens during this holy walk while they're on the way. And they are on the way. Okay? And he said to them, I'm going to ask them some questions. What are these words you were debating with one another? They stood looking sad. Okay? Tell me what's going on. Okay? 
Now, Cleopas responds, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem that does not know what has taken place during these days? <laughs> and, and, and Jesus says, Oh, what things? <laughs> We're just going to question this. How do you see the world here? They responded, The things regarding Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers handed him over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. Oops, wrong direction. And, but we hoped, as Old Testament believing people, and we hoped that he was the one who would redeem Israel. And besides this, today is the third day since this happened. What, what's important about that? He promised he would return. Does God keep his promises? So that's the debate. Did he do it or not? I don't know. He looked pretty dead. And so they're kind of going back and forth. So, so th think about what's happening. They're on, the they're on the way. They're struggling. They have come from, from Eden down into the lone and dreary world. And they don't understand and they're trying to hang on to promises, but it doesn't seem to be happening on their time frame. Did it happen or not? I don't know. Now, the funny thing about this is that here's their Old Testament context. If you're going to go back to Deuteronomy, listen to Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18 says, I will raise up for them a prophet like from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell you everything I command him. And I will hold accountable anyone who does not listen to my words. And that prophet speaks in my name. But, how does God keep his promises? Here it is. If any prophet dares to speak a message in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or to speak in the name of other gods, that prophet must be put to death. You see it? You may ask in your heart, how can we recognize a message that the Lord has not spoken? How do we know that this is a promise not made by God? And Deuteronomy, the Deuteronomist, Moses is going to say, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord and that message does not come to pass or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. Is Jesus alive or not? Did he really do this or not? If he is the prophet, then the world should be different today. Is it or not? That's, that's probably the debate. Again, Deuteronomy was seen as part of Torah. It's certainly part of the Pentateuch, but it's also part of Torah. It's like, this is our law. How do you know when a prophet is a prophet? Why do you think Laman and Lemuel tried to kill Lehi? He was making prophecies about the destruction of Jerusalem and it wasn't happening. Yet. Okay. So, there's the conversation. Now, back on the road. Now, here... 
Some of the women among us, it's got to be Cleopas, some of the women among us surprised us when they went to the tomb early this morning, and after they did not find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. We're, start, we're having these witnesses. Can you trust the witnesses of women? It's codified in the law of Moses that you don't necessarily trust the witnesses of women. They're saying it happened, but they couldn't find his body. So, and some of those with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman said, but they did not see him. Does God keep his promises or not? How does this work? I don't know. They did not see him. There's their conversation. Now, Jesus says, Fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken in the Old Testament. Was it not necessary for the Christ, the anointed one, to suffer these things and then to enter his glory? And he began with Moses and all the prophets and explained to them the things about himself and all the scriptures. Now, let me ask, for those of us that if we have left the Garden of Eden and we're kind of down in the lone and dreary world and we find out that God is walking among us, where do we start? Where do we start with anybody on the road, in the way? What do we want them to hear? What do we want to teach them? What would they listen to? He began with Moses and the prophets and explained to them the things in the scriptures. All the signs that point to him. And he's doing it from the Old Testament. <laughs> we need to know the Old Testament. We just do. We need to be better at this. Because they all pointed to him. Now some of that, it's true, might have been in the brass plates that they didn't have necessarily access to. It's possible. But, okay? Alright. Now, how does that... Now, we know from reading ahead, what is their response to the, to the Lord speaking to them and opening up the Scriptures? How, how did they feel? They wanted him to keep going. Sure, number one, they're going to want him to keep going. How did they feel inside? When he opened up the Scriptures to us, what happened? Did not our hearts burn within us? They're getting, they're getting a testimony in the way as they go. There's not a single moment yet where suddenly they know everything. But that's how, that's how the gospel works. Is the gospel works in stages and gradually along the way. As the scriptures are open up to us, we get a little bit more. We get a little bit more. Um, I've mentioned this before, but let me just let me just remind it again. If you're gonna if you're gonna show somebody the Book of Mormon today, and you're gonna have and you want them to join the church, 
What do you do? Read the Book of Mormon and then read what verse? Moroni 10, 4, and 5, right? Which says, you're going to read the Book of Mormon and then what happens? Then you know. Okay? So, here's what's going to happen. Think about this. I, I don't believe, I read the Book of Mormon, at 5 o'clock I don't know that it's true. I read the Book of Mormon at 8 o'clock, I get a testimony that it is true. So at 10 o'clock, I'm now going to uh, marry my girlfriend, stop smoking, and start going to church every week and keeping the Sabbath day holy and paying 10% of my income because I'm being baptized next week. So at, at 4 o'clock they don't know, 8 o'clock they do know, 10 o'clock they change their life, we baptize them the next Friday. How soon do they leave the church? Saturday. Saturday. As soon as they find out about polygamy that the missionaries didn't tell them, they're out. As soon as we run into any kind of opposition, somebody was mean to me at church, I'm out. And, but it's all based on that one moment when lightning struck and I knew that the Book of Mormon was true. That's why I keep trying... To, and I keep trying to say this a lot. I just don't think Moroni 10, 4, and 5 is our best scripture to show somebody reading the Book of Mormon. The best scripture for reading the Book of Mormon and getting a testimony of that would be what? Alma 32, 28. Plant the seed. Nourish the seed. Does it begin to swell within you? Does it begin to grow? And then you water it some more and it grows. And by the way... As the tree is growing, so are the, is the root system growing underneath it as well. Then what happens when they find out about here comes the wind of polygamy? Do they have roots to, to stand up underneath that while they learn and get more information? Sure. Rather than a single one-time event. And I think that's kind of what's happening here. Yeah? Thinking back when I joined the church, I had barely read the Book of Mormon. But it was just the spirit just told sure. it was the time. And I actually smoked as a teenager, which was crazy because I couldn't even stand the smell of smoke. <laughs> but, you're cool, but you were cool while you were smoking. Yeah, I guess. Wow, I'm cool. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I have a lot of relatives. I'm from Kentucky. You go, they smoke. But anyway. Um, and so when I went in and talked to the branch president and he said... And like I had friends that were going to Utah and they're like, oh, why don't you get baptized before we go? And I'm like, well, maybe I will after, you know, after I get back. And I'm like, no, get baptized before. So I go in, I talk to the branch president and he goes, do you like the word wisdom? And I said, well, I, I smoke. And he goes, well, can you quit? And I said, well, I guess I can. And I got baptized like the next day. Yeah. And never smoked again. But thinking back, scriptures that would have meant so much to me. Yeah is in Moroni 10, the gifts of the Spirit. Yeah, so a little bit farther on down there, right? Yeah. I agree. I agree. Yeah. Do missionaries now, do they still take that Moroni 10? They do. They do. And, and it's successful. Uh, I, I just think that there is... Uh, I, when I was on my mission, I found an interesting thing. I, I started asking... Uh, people that were patriarchs and stake presidents and uh, kind of the long-term pillars in these wards in, in England where I was at. And I wanted to know their conversion story. And, and guess what? Of all of the, the high leadership of the church I talked to on my mission, not one of them had had a one-week conversion. 
almost all had spent six months studying and growing and working on it and building it. And, and I know that one week conversions and golden investigators come along and they do. But I have just found that by, by and large, in general, the more gradual the process of building and learning and growing and adding and experiencing builds a firmer foundation on which you can put the challenges of the gospel and living the church. And I think that's being demonstrated here on the road to Emmaus. He, they're being taught along the way. They're not there yet, but they're learning. Their heart is burning. And, and so, uh, Stephanie, like you said, they, they, get, they get there as they've been walking seven miles. Uh, and and they, get, they get to that moment, and he acted as if he would travel further. God's going to kind of pass along. And what do they do? Invite him to stay. Tell me there's not a beautiful message in the fact that our hearts burn within us and we invite him to come and sup with us. That, that, that is just there, isn't it? It, just, it should just jump out at you. We will invite him to be with us. Uh, by the way, the, the other one, 3 Nephi 17. Think about what the Savior's talking to, the, to the, the Nephites and everything, and he goes, hey, I think you're kind of tired. I think we're done for the night. Why don't you guys go home? And, and the reaction from the Nephites in watching is what? Don't go. don't go. Stay with us. Stay with us. You want to, you, there's another message here in how conversion happens, I think. And... Our hearts burn, we invite him in with us, and we want to be with him. We don't want him to go away. Okay? So, yeah. Yeah. So, I really can relate to what you talk about. The Elma 32 is a little bit better than. Yeah, the Elma 32 might be a little better. That's kind of like my mom's case. She, uh, she, she got baptized two years ago. She was over 70. Okay, so, so her mom got baptized two years ago when she was 70. And um, while, while the missionaries were teaching her, uh, she got a lot of pressure because the missionary keep telling her to <coughs> go through the Book of Mormon and seeking that. A Moroni 10 moment. Yeah, they, so she was looking for the Moroni 10 moment. Yeah. So uh, she feels like that's kind of become a qualification for her to measure if she's ready or not. Ah, uh, so the, the Moroni 10 moment would be the yes. qualification, the moment that says, I shouldn't get baptized because I haven't had the yeah, moment. And also yes. Through the scripture, it's very hard for her because, you know, the age and, and any. Yeah. So, but There's that second Nephi thing and all the Isaiah stuff. Yeah. So the missionary keep making appointment with her, setting goal with her. Then she got very frustrated, and I, uh, I was able to uh, uh, Skype the missionary a couple of times and tell them what I feel uh, the qualification can be dropped down a little bit for my mom's case because my mom has shown a little bit. It show a few things that about her face. First, she never missed the church. She was always there at church, there sure. And she always meet with missionaries. So I try to tell missionaries, say, is it possible without reading through the scripture and without really, uh, you guys keep asking her those kind of like a questionnaire type of questions, 
then just set up a date with her and ask if she want to baptize. So, so, so rather than walk her through all the Book of Mormon looking for that, that, that moment. It's kind of like not going through this formula, you know, like. Yeah, there's a formula that we're looking for. But uh, because I, I as my as her daughter, I see she's really ready. She's more like on the job learning, you know. <laughs> she's more doing jo- on the job learning and training, yeah. And then that work, I after I talk to the missionary to explain, because you know I just want to share this to to uh, kind of yeah no I th- I, th- I think that's a, that's a great point that in fact isn't it interesting that that uh, Alma in trying to go through the qualifications for somebody that should be baptized uh, in in Mosiah isn't going through okay if you had this this lightning strike moment he just goes are you willing to mourn with those that mourn and you know comfort those that stand in need and comfort and then so what what's holding you back from being baptized because you want to join yourself to the, this people and then after, my, after my mom joined the church she really just every Sunday she learned in the church to continue building the things and, you know it, without any that moment she's I love that so, so she, after she's baptized, she comes, she stays, she's continuing to learn, she's continuing to grow. She receives invitation every Sunday to learn, rather than reaching a, a moment that has to be like a... Yeah, that, that's our moment. In, in fact, actually, the lightning strike moment is a little Protestant, to be honest with you. <laughs> it's the moment that says, this is the moment I came to Jesus, or this is the moment that I saw a sign that told me that this is what it should be, yeah. In defense of Moroni. <laughs> In defense of Moroni, yes. It works for a lot of people. I'm a convert, 50 years. I was yeah. in my early 20s, and I agree with everything you say. I, I, was, I investigated the church off and on for two years, had all these wonderful experiences. Yeah. When I first heard the first missionary discussion, I thought this was the strangest, weirdest thing I had ever heard, <laughs> and I really didn't want any part of it. Right. So even after two years, it still said. No, no. Two years later. Oh, two years later. I'm doing this praying after I'm getting to the point where I can say something's going to happen. Either I go with it or I don't go. Right. It wasn't a lightning striking thing. It was all, you pray, I prayed about it, and then I realized I'm totally comfortable. I'm already there. I'm totally, and I realized that I really felt that I had to go, I had to go there. Right. do that praying, and I had to have it solidified in my heart and my mind that yeah. it was true because it, I had lots of opposition from my family, and without that, it wasn't a lightning strike before and after. But I really think there is a lot to that. I, well, there is, and, and hold on to that idea because watch how this progresses. So, in this journey coming from Emmaus, and, and they're learning, and they're growing, and their hearts are burning within them, and they keep moving, and they get home, and they invite him in to sup with them because it just feels right. It, they love what they're hearing. Uh, it makes sense to them. They're probably feeling reassured. Uh, stay with us, for it is near evening. The day is almost ended. And he entered to stay with them. And it came to pass that while reclining with them, that's really kind of the sense of, Resting, while reclining with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Now, have you pictured that for a second? You should. Then you begin to see what happened here. 
So they, they've been feeling good. He comes. He's reclining everything. He takes bread. He breaks it. And he says, and he gives it to them. What happens right at that moment? What are they seeing? How do they know it's the Savior? The token. Yes. And we're going to talk, and we're going to use the word token next week when we go into Acts because it says that the Lord showed them many signs, and the, and the Hebrew, uh, translated in Greek, says token. So I'm going to use that. I'm not, I'm not speaking out of school. There was a sign. And what was it? The mark of the nail in his hand and his wrist. So he's going to break the bread and he's going to hand it to them. And not only are they hearing the words of the breaking of the bread, because I don't know that Cleopas and Mary were in the Last Supper a couple of nights before, but as soon as he breaks the bread and he hands it to them, now they see. That is an amazing moment. Steven Spielberg has nothing on that <laughs> second. He doesn't. When suddenly they're able to see... And in a second, it's all, everything that led up to that. Is that a lightning strike? No, I think it's a confirmation of everything that they were now believing. That was the culmination where they suddenly realized it's all true. There he is, and he's with us. Right. They, they showed forth their faith and then received that confirmation. Yeah, yeah. This sign comes not to convince them. Right. This sign comes after they've already been convinced. Right. And they're already moving in that direction. And he gave it to them. Okay, now. So, th there's, there's one of those millennial movies I want to watch. I want to see that moment when they, when they suddenly realize who's been with them all afternoon. And the scripture says what? <laughs> now their eyes are opened because they see God. Eden is now reversed. They have returned and they've come back into the presence of God. Their eyes are now opened. Okay? And, and New Testament readers would have understood that. That is, that is language for an Old Testament people. That would jump at them. So the, so the value of not giving them all the information at the beginning yeah. is there, they have to have a certain amount of their own discovery. Right. And then the sign of the token. Where is their, in their, in their agency, yeah. where's the moment of their agency to choose to accept God into them? When they plead with Him to stay. When they plead with Him to stay. It's right there. They made a choice. They felt it. They were filled with that. They invited him in. They made that decision to be believers. And, and as a result of that, he is then revealed to them. And now their eyes are opened. So did they just think he was another traveler on the path? Probably at first, yeah. I, I, think, I think along the way it was still, he starts talking to them. But his words are so convincing. But it's their, it's their reaction. They're feeling it. They're getting it. it the seed's being planted and growing. So that then they make the choice, and then he's revealed to them, and Eden is reversed. That, that's where that is. Okay? All right. Yeah. yeah? I just had to go back to the world I did. Uh-huh. 
that not everyone will, yeah, yeah. <coughs> right. Okay, now, if you're a believer and, and, and Eden has been reversed and you have accepted him in and now your eyes are open, what's your next responsibility? Well, yeah. And they said, oh, that, it makes sense now. Didn't our hearts burn within us? And he spoke to us on the way. Remember, that was the name of the church, on the way. Um, and he opened to us the scriptures. And they stood in that same hour and do what? Return to Eden. It's time, it's time to, with that knowledge, let's go back. They acted on it. They're going to return to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those with them gathered together saying, The Lord was indeed resurrected. He has appeared to Simon. Apparently uh, in that conversation, the, the, uh, he tells them that uh, he's appeared to Simon, uh, which he had. Uh, and then uh, an origin in the uh, first century picks up on this one. It says... Then they explained what occurred on the way and how he was made known to them when? While breaking the bread. For, a, for the early church fathers, when does God become revealed to you? At the breaking of the bread. When you take, for, for a Catholic or something, when you take the Eucharist, that's when God is revealed to you at the breaking of the bread. And so they, that, that was part of that. And even for us, uh, the Lord should be revealed to us in the sacrament at the breaking of the bread. And, and it's symbolic, but I, I love what it's saying to the believer's journey. Yeah? So that first 33 of the little bit, because of the punctuation and so forth, because it seems that they show up and the 11 are there, and then the question is, who in fact is saying the Lord was indeed resurrected in the end of the time? And I believe that's the 11 saying that. And then in 35, you hear the response from the two disciples on the road to Emmaus to say, and guess what happened to us? I, th I think that's entirely possible. It kind of leaves that open, doesn't it? It could be Cleopas. It could be the, the 11 going, yeah, he was here. We have, yeah. Because by then it, it had happened, right? Uh, by the time that time we've got Mary Magdalene, she's going back. Uh, uh, Peter and John would have gone to the tomb. They would have come back. By the time they've walked to Emmaus, had this experience, and come back at evening time, it's probably that's probably already happened. I think that's real possible. In the mouth of two, three and here comes the other witnesses going, "Yeah, we saw him too." Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. All right. Okay. So. Okay, two quick things uh, before, before we wrap up here. I think it's interesting. If you look in uh, John 20, it's the evening of the first day. It's the evening of the first day. Remember? So these guys are probably, that's why I say, back to, um, down to Emmaus, come back, doors are closed, disciples are there. Jesus comes, stands among them, says, Peace be unto you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples rejoiced, seeing them again. Then Jesus said to them, Peace be unto you, 
Just as the Father sent me, even so I send you. And then he does something, and we don't, I think we miss this a lot in this scripture because that's the story we tell. We miss an element here. Look at what happens next at this very first returning. And he said, and after he said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, think Old Testament, guys. Think Old Testament. Breathing on him. What? The breath of God. <laughs> Very nice. Yes. There you, go. you have to just. Yes. Yes. That word, the word that is used there is only used one other time in the scriptures. There's a lot of Greek words about breathing and spirit and stuff like that. But this, he breathed on them, is only done one other time. And it's in Genesis 2. Yeah. No, Genesis 2. The Lord formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostril the breath of life and man became a living soul. If you're going to use the word breathe, an Old Testament people would go, it's Adam. It's, it's, it's Adam. Eden has been reversed. That's what I'm saying. There is a, in their world, something tremendous is happening here. That all of the pains and consequences of Eden are being reversed time and time. And now we have men as the new Adams. And what's being breathed into them is a new life in Christ. And that's pretty amazing. And as, and as p modern day people, we would totally miss this. If you don't see it through their eyes. Then with, once they're, and they have this Holy Spirit, then what comes next? If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you retain anyone's sins, they are retained. Now what's happening? It's the sealing power. This isn't just Eden going on here, guys. Is there another experience that you can think of with men seeing God and then receiving the sealing power? This is Kirtland. This is section 110. This is Joseph Smith. Receiving the keys after having met with the Savior. So it's, that's why I say this. A new dispensation is beginning now. And having the power to do that. And to be able to breathe on others, actually, and give them the Holy Spirit. Okay? And the result of that breathing on them will do what? It will forgive sins. Whew. Wow. Now they're acting Savior-like. Because they are forgiving. I thought only God could do that. Well... Under the law of Moses, it only had to happen in, it had to be in the temple, it had to happen a certain way on Yom Kippur. That's the way it works. This is new world. And everything has just been changed. This is a new dispensation with Peter, James, and John. So, pretty amazing. All right. Um, Okay, yeah, that's what I did. Okay, I thought so. All right. So let me, I wanted to do this. Um, 
There, there's a lot here. I'm going to grab John 20. There's a couple of things that really kind of jump out. You can follow in the uh, whichever scriptures you've got. All right. Uh, John 20, 24. We know the story, right? Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them at that moment. But he says, if I don't see these, if I don't see the signs, I'm not necessarily going to believe. Okay? Now, look at verse 26. When does when does the Savior come back again? There is this moment. He's going to visit. John says he visits three times the disciples. One is on the morning of the resurrection. And then the second is when? And, and Thomas misses out on that one. And Thomas must have heard the same thing from the women, and he just wasn't checked in yet. 26 says when? After eight days. Wow. Eight days they're met again. Thomas is with them. Jesus comes. And he has him experience all of that. And Thomas goes, My Lord and my God. Uh, Jesus says to him, Do you believe uh, you have seen me? Blessed are those who do not see but believe. So for Thomas, his joy gets delayed by a week. Now, but I want you to look at this, that last line. Blessed are they those who do not see but believe. Who's reading this and when? The book of John comes out about 90 A.D. 90 A.D. These people in 90 A.D. are now reading this really for the first time. And what, here's what they're reading. Blessed are those who do not see but believe. Now, look at what John says in verse 30. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But, 31, these things are written so that who? You. you. These things are written so that you. Suddenly he's turned and he's looking at the reader. This is, this is like when somebody's in a movie and they suddenly turn and look at the audience. Okay, You're in the middle of this story and they go, or they're on a play or something like that. By the way, for those of you here at the show today, you know, they step out of, out of character. These things are written so that you, meaning First century, you meaning us, you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you will have life in his name. Okay? God keeps his promises. He does. And this is written so that you will know that God keeps his promises. I, I, I love that. Now, the thing, that's, the thing that I especially love about this, um, and we'll, we'll talk next week about Feed My Sheep, but you need a couple of witnesses, right? We, we, talk, we talked about witnesses. So here's the first one. John says in 31, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Now, at the end of the book of John, 
Whoever is putting the book of John together decides that like the three witnesses to the Book of Mormon, we ought to have additional witnesses. Okay? And I don't know who added the addendum to the book of John, but they did. So hop all the way over to 24 of 21, uh, chapter 21, with the last, last couple of verses of the book of John. This is great. Okay? Here's the last thing in the book of John. This is the disciple who testifies. These are his friends. This is the disciple who testifies and wrote these things and we know that his testimony is true. Sounds almost Book of Mormon like, doesn't it? I saw Chemish write it with his own hand, okay, and I'm going to write mine, okay? It's like, no, we saw this. We know this is the disciple, John, who testifies and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are maybe many things that Jesus did that if each were written, I suppose that the world itself would not have space for the books that would be written. But I love the fact that we, first of all, we get John's testimony. I wrote these so that you'll know it's true. And then he gets his friends or, or editors or whoever going, we know his testimony is true because he's the, te- he's the uh, apostle who testifies. Okay. So, anyway. Yeah. Yeah, that was still ringing around in there. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think the shortcut that most people adopt, which is uh, inadequate, is read, pray, know. Yeah. Quickly. And if you, Quickly. Can you reread three through five, it is read, ponder until it's in your heart, commit yourself with real intent, yep. then pray, know. Yep. Yep. So there's a function of faith in there that is not included in read, pray, know that is required. And it's not the it's not the narrative we tell, is it? No. It's not the narrative we use with that. But you'll pray, you'll know. It is read, believe, determine to act, yeah. pray, and know. And if there's anything we get from the road to Emmaus, I really believe that it shows us that that the conversion process is a journey. It is a gradual coming to know through the scriptures that God keeps his promises. Here's what it looks like. It, the prophets have all said this. Uh, it's funny. I was, I was listening to a, a debate uh, this last week on, on YouTube. Uh, and the, these are, there's some really prominent New Testament scholars. Uh, one, one of them I've mentioned before, a guy by the name of uh, Bart Ehrman, who is uh, an incredibly great New Testament scholar and an atheist, <laughs> and and believes that Jesus Jesus never said he was God. It's kind of a fun discussion. Um, and the funny thing about that is that one of the one of the other kind of counterpoints to it is we really like the works of Plato, but we don't have any of the originals, and we only have one copy from one person that said Plato said these things. How many witnesses do we have that Jesus was the Christ, said he was the Christ, and that witnessed that he was resurrected? You know, that's why we're going back to Paul, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, where he's going, hey, he was seen by the, first by Peter, by Mary, and Peter, then by the, the 12, and then 500 people saw him. That's a lot of witnesses. 
Not to mention the Book of Mormon. And then the Book of Mormon is a whole other story. <laughs> yeah, so the witnesses are there. Now, the thing that makes this tougher, and I'm going to set this up for next week. Uh, I don't want to spend too much time because we have practically no information on it. I want to, I want to finish in the last week uh, before we have our, our uh, oral final uh, is the 40-day ministry. Uh, everything that we have about the 40-day ministry, the 40 days from the time that Jesus is resurrected to the time that he ascends into heaven for the last time um, is apocryphal. And it's apocryphal because no, no legitimate founding father of Christianity wanted to put in, into their writings that Jesus taught about the fact that the church would fall away, things would get really bad, and then the church would go into the wilderness and not come out for a while. <laughs> that didn't really fit with the narrative that they were trying to <laughs> say. So, so we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit about that and then kind of put our kind of button on kind of the end of the New Testament. So, um, Comments? Yeah? What's comforting thing to me on this, on today's lesson, on the road, as we're working on our own conversion, was that uh, uh, even though these persons did not did not know that Christ was with them, He's always with us. Yeah. And, and He's always there. And all we need to do is just open the door ourselves to let Him in. He's always there when we're working on I think, I think that's a great point. And in fact, when, we are, when we're studying the scriptures and we open up the scriptures starting with Moses and we roll it forward and, and our heart starts to feel something, in a sense we've invited him in. I think that's a great sentiment. And that we can have him with us. That's the, the testifying power of the Spirit that says a member of the Godhead comes and says, God keeps his promises. He does. You can trust this guy. He loves you. He's going to take care of you. Uh, and kind of take it from there. So, Good stuff, huh? Uh, I dumped a lot on you, Dave. But, uh, I love this class and how you handle that. So, uh, Again, I bury my testimony that the Lord intends uh, each of us to have our road to Emmaus moments. That he invites us to, to walk with him. And then once our eyes have been opened... Then, then we get a chance to begin to return back into his presence. That's kind of the goal. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.